Well, happy Palm Sunday, everyone. It's, uh, it's wonderful to have this time of year to, to purposefully and intentionally turn our attention to uh, the wonderful Easter week. When, when we see the sacrifice of Jesus, when we reflect on the wonder of God's salvation plan, when we see the, the, the brutality that Jesus endured for us, yet the love that he embodied, when we see his resurrection power displayed, when we see the response that he demands, when we see the life he ultimately offers through this first holy week, all of that is wrapped up in what we see in the gospel accounts of this most holy of weeks. And maybe there are some, as Tim has mentioned already, maybe there are some for whom we have, we have celebrated Holy Week many times, and maybe more years than we would care to let on. But we celebrated Holy Week many times, and so perhaps there are some also who, for, uh, for this year, the, the biblical accounts of what we're going to celebrate this week are going to feel fairly new, fairly new news, fresh news. Uh, and perhaps there might be some, therefore, in that first category who are thinking, oh, Palm Sunday, oh yeah, we, we, we know that story, and we know what it means, and, and that familiarity can, can almost breed a sense of, of, dare we say, mundanity with our understanding of the story, not the story itself, which continues to be marvelous, but our understanding of it and our engagement with it. Um, and so my prayer for all of us today, however many times we've engaged with these accounts, however many times we've heard a sermon on Palm Sunday, my prayer is that God would speak powerfully to us, that he would, he would break through that familiarity if there is some, that for some of us, and that he would show us the beauty of his truth which is always good, and it's always true, and it's always his voice speaking to us. And therefore, he would show us the urgency with which he longs us to engage with him because of this passage today. Uh, and so again, I'd love for you to turn to Matthew 21. Uh, and we are going to read that again, um, having just read it in the service. But let's read it uh, to familiarize ourselves again with what is going on in this wonderful account. Um, and obviously, we're jumping into a story that Matthew has spent 20 chapters out, laying out the, the beginning of Jesus' life and his early ministry. And now as his, his earthly ministry comes towards it, its conclusion, uh, we are jumping in uh, to this story. So they've obviously been traveling around and chapter 21 begins. As they approached Jerusalem and they came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and the crowds that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. What a scene is this. Can you imagine the the sense of jubilation, of celebration as the disciples are there and the crowds have gathered 
And there's, there's branches cut and laid on the ground. The shouts of the people, the stirring of the city. This is, this is an incredible scene. And to help us understand and, and appreciate the enormity of the event that's taking place here, I want us to spend some time considering the question that's asked right at the end. So in verse 10, we read, As Jesus rides into the city, the crowd shouting and people celebrating, we read, When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? Who is this? Surely the identity of this man on the colt of a donkey is the central piece of this story. The crowds are important. The palms are important. Everything is is good detail, but surely this is all about the guy on the donkey. Who is this? And that might sound like an understandable question as the whole city is stirred. And for us, as we read this, maybe familiar with this passage, it might sound like a straightforward question. But throughout Matthew's gospel to this point, not to mention, of course, all of Scripture, there have been multiple occasions where the identity of this man, Jesus, is revealed as the most important thing we can ever consider in our lives. Who is this man? Could be said that is the most important question any of us can ever answer. And that might sound like I'm overstating the point, but I truly don't believe so. How you answer this question, who is this? Who is Jesus? How you answer that question is the most important thing you can ever consider. And so that's what we're going to think about this morning. And particularly, although there is lots that we could consider just within Matthew's gospel alone, and I'd encourage you to do that. Have a flick through the 20 chapters up to this point and see the number of times Jesus' identity is talked about. Whether it's the father in chapter 3 declaring, this is my son, which is repeated in chapter 17 at the transfiguration. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Or maybe it's the demons who cry, son of God, have mercy. Maybe it's the crowd who say, this, is, this man is amazing. He teaches with authority at the end of chapter 7 and so on and so on and so on. And then right up in chapter 16, we get Peter, Jesus saying to the disciples, who do the crowd say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. The identity of this man is the most important thing that we can ever consider. And from these 11 verses, I think we see at least three things about who this man is. Who is Jesus? And I think here we see Jesus is the sovereign king. Jesus is the humble king. And Jesus is the worshipped king. And how rightfully so. Jesus is the sovereign, humble, and worshipped king. And let's think, first of all, then, about Jesus as the sovereign king. Let me reread verses 1 to 3. As they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples ahead, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. See, in these verses, Jesus explains to his disciples exactly what will happen. They will go to the next village. They will find a donkey and her colt. They will untie her and bring them to him. He will ride that donkey and her colt into Jerusalem. Jesus has knowledge. And that knowledge goes way beyond human ability. And of course, that is because Jesus is way more than a human man. He doesn't just have some kind of incredible superhuman insight into what is going on. No, the Bible clearly shows us that Jesus is God in human form. 
He is the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Therefore, he is sovereign. Meaning that he knows all things. He is over all things. And perhaps you can remember those verses and that thought from a couple of weeks ago when Jonathan started our service by considering Colossians 1. And our men and women have both been looking at these passages in our Bible studies recently. But Colossians 1, this is talking about Jesus. This is the one who knows that the donkey is in the village ahead of him and sends his disciples there. The son is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1 begins. He is the image of the invisible God. And... Uh, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Jesus is sovereign and he's the sovereign king. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. See, that's how he's able to know about the donkey. It's how he's able to know about the village. It's how he's able to know the owner of the donkey will say, yes, the Lord needs it. Okay. He made the donkey. He made the village. He made the earth. The village stands on. All things are made in him and through him. He is sovereign. And as if that that knowledge of all that is presently happening isn't enough to show us his immense knowledge and understanding He knows that actually to come to Jerusalem on this donkey has to happen this way because 500 years or thereabouts earlier, God prophesied that this is how the king would come. Verse 4 begins, or says clearly, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And what is quoted there comes directly from uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on the colt, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So 500 years or thereabouts before this, recorded in Matthew 21, God promised his people that he would send his king. And of course, throughout the Old Testament, God had promised that he would send his king. But this very specific prophecy from Zechariah 9 shows how the king would enter Jerusalem. And Jesus knows this because he is sovereign. Eternally, he was there when the prophecy was given. And so he now is physically on the earth and knows that to come to Jerusalem as the sovereign Messiah, he had to come exactly as it was prophesied. And he is fulfilling this prophecy in its complete entirety. See, this is is much more than just a, a clever nod to a piece of history. This this is not just Jesus showing the crowd that he knows the Old Testament. No, this is much more than that. It's a marker to us of the sovereignty of our God. This God who is in control of the events of human history. This God whose unquenchable ability to bring about his plans. This is our God. This is Jesus, the sovereign king. Jesus knows all, he is in all. And as we think today about the one that we're celebrating, riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, and we hear this question, who is this? I pray that we can answer this question with confidence to say, this is Jesus. He is the sovereign king. And and maybe even more than that, this is Jesus, my sovereign king. He is not someone I just know about. He is someone I know. 
Here's the one I completely trust because of the events of this week and what they enabled. So Jesus is the sovereign king. And secondly, as Jesus fulfills this prophecy from Zechariah and, and rides into Jerusalem, we see him coming as the humble king. See, Jesus, as we've just seen him, as the one who is in all and through all and, and all things were made by him and through him, this incredible, unmatchable power and sovereignty, we, we might assume that he had the right to come into Jerusalem with incredible pomp and ceremony. He, he had the right to come and display some kind of military strength. That, that's certainly what many of the Jews were expecting when they thought of the Messiah coming. As they lived under Roman rule with limited freedoms, they expected God's Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer of God's people, would break the shackles of that Roman oppression and restore their nation, Israel, to its rightful independent place. Many had that view of what the Messiah would be. But that's not the kind of Messiah we see prophesied in Zechariah 9. And it's not the kind of Savior we see described in Isaiah 52 and 53. It's not what Jesus has said about himself three times so far about what would happen as he came to Jerusalem. See, Jesus is the sovereign king, but he is humble in his kingly rule. As he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, the, image might, the imagery might be lost to us as 21st century readers. But in that day, for a king to arrive in a city riding on a donkey was a symbol of peace. It, it was not a military overthrower coming riding in on a stallion though it was a, a king coming in peace as Zachariah said God's king would come gently or lowly riding on a donkey because Jesus came as the humble king Jesus the son of God humbled himself as we've been thinking recently through Philippians he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross as Jesus entered Jerusalem he knows what lies ahead of him in the week to come he knows the cross is coming. As I've just said, he explained that to his disciples three times. In chapter 16, chapter 17, again in chapter 20, he explained the Son of Man will be handed over and will be crucified. He knows what lies ahead of him. And he knows that he's the Son of God, the sovereign king. Yet he knows that his people need his death. And so as he comes as the king, he comes humbly, obedient to death. For he knows that, that for his people to know forgiveness from sin, for his people to know life with him, they need his saving work. They need the Father's plan of salvation to be worked out, and Jesus humbles himself to it. Yes, Jesus is the sovereign king, but Jesus is the humble king. However, let's not misconstrue that humility as weakness. In his humility, Jesus wielded ultimate power still. He didn't set aside his ability to become humble. No, he humbled himself. As Zechariah also prophesied, your king comes to you righteous and victorious. Yes, Jesus is the humble king, absolutely, but that doesn't mean his power is tamed. Indeed, his humiliating death and his subsequent resurrection was the greatest victory. And his humility enabled that, brought that about, was part of the plan. It was through his death that the penalty of sin, the sin of the world was paid. As Jesus took the sins of us upon himself, then God's wrath was justly satisfied in that sacrifice. And for a brief moment of history, it might have seemed like Satan had won. The serpent from Genesis 3 had indeed struck the heel 
of the offspring of woman, but that wound was in no way fatal. Because as Jesus, the one who holds the sovereign power over everything, he defeats death. He rose victoriously from it. Indeed, in that imagery from Genesis 3, he crushes the serpent's head. I've been so struck recently, and apologies if you were at the prayer meeting a few weeks ago when I mentioned this song, but there's been a song that I've come across recently by City of Light called It Was Finished Upon the Cross. And I just want to read the lyrics of some of the verses to you because this is what Jesus accomplished for us as he died. And this is why he humbly came, willing to sacrifice himself. The song reads, How I love the voice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. He declares his work is finished. He has spoken this hope to me. Though the sun had ceased its shining, though the war appeared as lost, Christ had triumphed over evil. It was finished upon that cross. Now the curse, it has been broken. Jesus paid the price for me. Full the pardon he has offered. Great the welcome I receive. Boldly I approach my father, clothed in Jesus' righteousness. There is no more guilt to carry. It was finished upon that cross. Death was once my great opponent. Fear once had a, a hold on me. But the son who died to save us rose that we would be free indeed. Free from every plan of darkness. Free to live and free to love. Death is dead and Christ is risen. It was finished upon that cross. Are these wonderful words? This is what Jesus accomplished. Yes, he is sovereign over the entire universe. Yet he humbly came and he humbly came in order to die. Because the debt of our sin through his death is then fully paid at the cross. Forgiveness is offered to those who come in full repentance, confession and faith. Life is given. Mercy, grace, peace, purpose. That's what we find at the foot of the tree when we come and give our lives to Christ. Accepting that he has paid the sacrifice in my place. Oh, what a savior. And all of that was accomplished at the cross of Christ. This cross that held our humble king. But it couldn't defeat him. And so again, as we ask the question, who is this? I pray that we, we can answer. Jesus is our humble king. And once again, I pray that we know him as your humble king, my humble king. Recognizing that to know the forgiveness and the cleansing that he offers, we must come and humble ourselves before our humble king. We must confess. We must repent. We must turn from sin. We must devote our lives to him. We must strive after holiness. We must give him our whole lives. Yes, he is humble, but he is still king. His humility is astounding, but his authority is never in doubt. His humility is astounding, but his authority is never in doubt. He is humble, yes, but he is king. He is the sovereign king. He is the humble king. And finally, Jesus is also the worshipped king. And while Jesus approaches the city on the colt of a donkey, the crowds rightly worship him. We're told in verse 8 that a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road as well. Can you picture the scene? This very large crowd going in front and behind Jesus as they approach the city. Some of them throw their cloaks on the ground, making this carpet of, of welcome and adoration and, and appreciation and worship, can we say? Others cut branches and, and wave them a little bit like you would see at a royal parade. 
And they shout. And they shout praise. Look at what they shout. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. These are great declarations of praise. And they speak about all that we've mentioned so far. Jesus is the Messiah that was promised. He's the son of David. That term, the son of David, is used regularly throughout Matthew's gospel. And we see it, 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 it means the Messiah. He is the one who was promised to David. As we see prophesied in Jeremiah 23, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up a branch, a righteous branch for David, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. And that backs up what God had promised to David himself in 2 Samuel 7, that he would put on David's throne a, a, a king who would reign forever. This is the, the Messiah that the Jews were expecting. And now he's riding into the city on a donkey. And so they shout, Son of David, Hosanna, which means save, save, Hosanna, Son of David. Indeed, this term, Son of David, it's wrapped all the way through Matthew's gospel. It's how he starts the book. Chapter 1, verse 1 of Matthew, is this, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David. And so the crowds shout out. And that's just one of the things that they shout. Jesus is the worshipped king. He is the Messiah. He's the one who saves. Now, now ultimately and desperately sadly, we know that many in this crowd completely change their chants by the end of the week. They, they start here with Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And after Jesus' arrest and questioning, Pilate presents him to the crowd, finding no fault in him, and asks the crowd, what do you want me to do with him? And they scream, they cry in Matthew 27, 22, crucify him. In less than a week, they've gone from Hosanna to the son of David to crucify him. And so the, the sovereign, humble king is led away to be crucified. And, and so as we think about chapter 21 today, as we think and as we appreciate, as we join in with the worship that Jesus has given by the crowd here, we must also recognize the fickleness of their hearts. That yes, they maybe admired Jesus. He had done incredible things. Indeed, we're told that he amazed them many times, but it seems that they didn't all adore him. They didn't all worship him with their whole lives. Now, some did, obviously, but many did not. Their worship was, of him was pretty fleeting. But, but also, let's, let's appreciate that just because their worship of him was fleeting doesn't mean that his worthiness to receive the worship was fleeting. No, not at all. He hasn't changed. In fact, the entirety of Scripture ends with Jesus ultimately receiving all the worship that he's rightfully owed. Revelation 5, we're given this wonderful picture of heaven. And in verses 11 to 13, we see this incredible story and an account of praise. And I just want to read just a little bit of this with you. Revelation 5, I'll begin at verse 11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. 
Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. This is our future. This is what's going on currently in heaven. Jesus is being praised rightfully so because he is the lamb who was slain and he is the coming king. He's the sovereign king, the humble king. He is indeed the worshipped king. And he's worshipped as he entered into Jerusalem. He's worshipped today by millions of people gathered around in his body, the church. And he will be worshipped for all eternity. Why? Because he alone is worthy. He is king. And he's the king who bought his people by his blood. We see that just a little earlier on in chapter 5 of Revelation. He bought his people by his blood. He's the one who became obedient to death. He's the one who, who left glory of heaven and came to make his dwelling among his own creation. He's the one who rose from the dead. He's the one who's ascended in heaven. He's the one who's currently sitting at the right hand of the Father. He is the one who will come again to judge the world. He is the one who is sovereignly, authoritatively, eternally on the throne. He is king. This is Jesus. Who is this? Jesus. The sovereign king, the humble king, the worshipped king. He is not just as the crowds say in verse 11 of Matthew 21. The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. He is so much more. He is Jesus, our king, our sovereign, humble and worshipped king. And, and if we know him this morning, if we love him as such this morning, then may our lives reflect the reality of who he is. May we live under his sovereign rule. May we seek to humbly serve the world that he's placed us in. And may our whole lives be given to him in response, in a worshipful response, joyful, expectant obedience, saying, Jesus, you are worthy of all that I have. And we do all of that for his glory for his praise in response to the immeasurable grace that he has poured out upon us because he is our king, the king who rode into Jerusalem humbly on a donkey, the king who ultimately hung on the tree, the king who victoriously rose from the dead, the king who has ascended, the king who reigns, the king who will forever reign. Who is this? This is Jesus. And may we know him May our lives reflect what we know of him as our true king. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for sending your son into the world. We thank you that he, he was willing to leave the glory of heaven. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And through his victorious rising from the grave, he is now exalted given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee must bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, we praise you, God. We thank you for the, the, the mystery of your salvation plan, that we would never have enacted a plan like this, but in your sovereign grace and in your wonderful way, in the only way that salvation could come, you have made it possible. And so we praise you, God. Thank you for those of us who know you as our Savior. Lord, this week as we head towards the Easter weekend again, would you, would you refresh our hearts with the reality of our salvation? 
And as David prayed in Psalm 21, would you therefore restore the joy of our salvation, Father? What joy it is to know that we were once children of wrath, but now you have given us mercy. We are deserving of eternal death by our sin, yet because of the sacrifice of Jesus and us putting our trust in his atoning sacrifice, we now know life with you. God, we thank you and we praise you. And as we reflect on, on this, this scene in Jerusalem as Jesus comes riding on a donkey, thank you that in him we see our sovereign king, we see our humble king, and we indeed see our worshipped king, and we pray that our lives would reflect his sovereign control over us, that we would be eternally grateful for his hum- humility, and we would live a life of humility too. And Father, that we would worship the King. Oh, we give you so much praise, Father. And I pray that you would help us to grasp the wonderful reality of your saving work and live in eternal, in, that enables us to live in eternity with you. So we thank you, Father. We pray your blessing upon the rest of our time this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.